Good morning. I want to start by saying that uh, you're in for a treat tonight because you don't have to listen to me. Uh, and I hope that you will forgive me, but as soon as we get done with the last amen, I'm out of here. Uh, I'll be at Freed Hardeman this week. Um, by the way, if you want to catch me, you can, you can go on the live stream with the Freed Hardeman Lectures, and you can watch as Corey Collins and I engage in a discussion about uh, preaching, and I'm sure that's exciting stuff you really want to listen to. But, uh, so please forgive me for having to run out early today. Blake is on for tonight, and he has been told by his son, do not preach as long as Chris. So that's, that's true. He's been told that. So I'll let, I'll let you tell the whole story tonight. That's hilarious. In 2010, a wedding party in Australia was unexpectedly called into action. They were taking photos on a scenic ledge overlooking the ocean when a woman not related to the wedding party fell in the water and began struggling. She was drowning. Quickly responding were the best man and the bride. The best man jumped into the water, brought the woman who was unconscious to the shore, and the bride, who was a nurse, began administering CPR. The woman regained consciousness and ended up being okay, but the rescue workers, when they arrived on the scene, said that she was very fortunate that this wedding party reacted so quickly. After the woman was determined to be okay, the best man and the bride, who were now completely drenched, joined the wedding festivities, and everything went on from there. Why do I tell you that story? Because that's us. As the church, that is us. We are the bride awaiting the bridegroom. We come here for a celebration every Sunday dressed up to worship our Heavenly Father. But we're also ready to dive into the mission, right? Even when it's dangerous, we're ready to be rescue workers. We are the bride and the rescuers. It's who we are. At least it's who we should be. You know... In the 11 years that I've been here, we've talked a whole lot about evangelism, and with good reason, because evangelism is the number one mission for the church and for Christians. It's also the most neglected mission of the church and of Christians in most places. And I don't want to harp on the negative this morning. We've done that enough. We all know the issue. We all know the problem. And I don't really want to talk about strategy this morning, because we've talked about that for hours on end. And while there are many good strategies that we could employ, I want to take a different approach this morning. I want to talk about the impetus behind our efforts to reach the lost. Matthew chapter 9, beginning of verse 35. I won't read it to you because one of the elders read it this morning to you. But I want you to notice the five words that begin verse 36. When he saw the crowds. That's where it all starts. When he saw the crowds, that's where the mission begins. It begins with seeing. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds. Just the other day, I was confiding in a friend of mine about how I have become addicted to strawberry limeades from Tropical Smoothie. And my friend said, Tropical Smoothie, where's the closest one? I said, there's one here in Abilene. He said, really, where? I said, on Buffalo Gap Road. It's next to Starbucks across the street from Taco Bueno. And he goes, really? Really? I have never noticed that. 
Sometimes it can be right there. He said, I go to Starbucks all the time. I go to, you know, Taco Bueno all the time. I've never even seen it. And it's easy to miss something you're not looking for. Especially when it comes to a crowd of people. It's easy just to see the crowd and not see the people. Jesus saw the crowd. I mean, he really saw the crowd. He saw the people who make up the crowd. And again, this isn't easy because I don't know about you, but I don't like crowds especially. Except at church, right? But anywhere else, I'm not a big fan of crowds. I walk into a restaurant and it's overcrowded and you're going to have to wait for 20 minutes. I usually leave. I'm not going to stand in line for food. I don't think any food's worth that. When I go into a crowded place, I get nervous. I get anxious. I just don't like big crowds. And you can imagine Jesus in his short time here on earth, healing the sick, calming the storm, exercising demons, you know, teaching and preaching and traveling to all the different places that he did. That had to be frustrating, tiring, and exhausting. That kind of nonstop ministry can wear you out. But Jesus looked at the crowd and he saw something that the others didn't see. And that's not because they were blind. It's just that they didn't see people the way Jesus did. Immediately following those five words, when he saw the crowds, we find five more words. He had compassion for them. For who? For them. Who is the them? Well, apparently people who were harassed and helpless. This passage gives us a window into Jesus' heart. It's not the only passage that does that. You can just continue in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, chapter 15, verse 32, chapter 20, verse 34. There's more, but I'll stop. I'm just simply building a case that Jesus often showed compassion. He often saw people. That was his mission, to see people and to reach them through compassionate efforts. However, Jesus' compassion wasn't simply sympathy or pity. Jesus was not just another bleeding heart. The compassion that he displayed in his ministry goes way deeper than some surface emotion. And the reason we know this is because of that word compassion in the original language. It's kind of a difficult word. It's the word splankna. Any guess what that word literally means in the Greek? Splankna and compassion? Yeah, intestines. Duh. Everybody knew that, right? In fact, it's described as the heart, the lungs, the liver, and the kidneys, the inward parts. Thayer's Greek English lexicon says that it is to be moved to one's bowels. Not sure I like that definition, but there it is. It's interesting that both the Hebrews and the Greeks came to use this term in a figurative sense to describe deep feelings of tenderness and compassion. It's very similar to how we use the heart. We say, I heart someone. I love someone with all my heart. Same kind of thing. In other words, when Jesus shows compassion, it is a gut level compassion. Kind of like when we see or hear of someone who has been diagnosed with cancer that we love, it punches us in the gut. When we hear of someone passing away that we were close to, or at least we were acquainted with, it's like we got punched in the gut. That's what's being referred to here. It's gut-level compassion. You know, a hospital waiting room is a place where all pretense is gone. If it's a surgery waiting room, if it's an ICU 
waiting room, no longer does it matter the color of your skin, how much money you make, what your status is in life. All that matters in that waiting room is the next doctor's report, right? Everyone who is sitting in a hospital waiting room, a surgery waiting room, or ICU is hanging on that next bit of hope where the doctor comes out and says, surgery went well. You'll be able to go and see him or her in just a few moments. If it's the ICU waiting room, you, you just can't wait for the doctor to come by and give you an update about what's going on. And you're praying that the update is positive, that he's progressing, that everything's going to be fine. Hope fills a hospital waiting room. Something else fills these waiting rooms as well, and it's compassion. Everyone knows it. From the receptionist to the other people who are in there waiting, to the friends that may have come, even the perfect strangers understand that this is a place that is filled with hope and compassion. Everyone is waiting on that next doctor's report. And it's not just pity. It's not just surface emotion. It's not just feeling sorry. It's gut-level compassion, right? That's the environment that we are in today. Imagine the world as a waiting room. Imagine all the sick people that are out there. What they need is not for someone to rail on them because they are sick. They don't need a critic or a judge. They need a physician. They need people who are moved with gut-level compassion. And Jesus shows us what this looks like. His reason for the gut punch. The impetus behind his compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Like a sheep without a shepherd. So it wasn't the hunger of these people that got his attention right off the bat. It wasn't you know, that, that, that they were demon-possessed that stirred up his gut. It was the fact that they had no center. They had no core. They were wandering around aimlessly. He says that they were harassed and helpless. You know, here's another interesting Greek word, the word for harassed. That word can mean skinned, mangled, flayed. Refers to the skin being removed from the body. It can also refer to being hunted or worn out. It forms a word picture here. These people are foot sore and fleece worn. Some are lying on their backs and can't get up. Some are wandering around over here on this hill. Some are wandering around over on that hill. They, they don't know where they're supposed to be or who they're supposed to be following because they have no shepherd. And Jesus says, we're going to do it. We. Him, the apostles, and us, right? The commission's been handed down to us. We're going to take care of them. We're going to be their center. We're going to be their core. We're going to show them what Jesus looks like and what a shepherd looks like. So where do we start? I mean, all of us know the problem, right? None of us disagree with what is stated in Matthew chapter 9 by Jesus about the harvest being plentiful and the laborers being few. We all understand that by and large, the church and individual Christians fail in this mission over and over again. There's blogs, there's programs, there's pie charts, there's all kinds of things that have been given to show where our failures are. But what do we do? Where do we start? Again, there's been a lot of strategies offered but Jesus gives us something very interesting. He doesn't say, go down and talk to them and ask them if they want to watch Jewel Miller Field Strips. He doesn't say, hey, go down there and give them some, some money and then that 
provide an opportunity that you can talk to them about the gospel. Don't go down there and even you know, worry about feeding them right off the bat. Now, here's what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Did you catch that? Therefore, pray earnestly. You would think, given the short amount of time that Jesus had on earth, you would think, given the amount of people that were in need of a physician, that he would be urgent in sending the apostles down and trying to preach the gospel to as many as possible and encourage a reaction and a response, but he doesn't. He says, first and foremost, here's where you start. Pray earnestly, because Jesus is well aware of the fact that no great movement ever began without first hitting your knees. In Matthew chapter 10, you'll see that he is about to send the apostles out. Any great movement starts on your knees. It's the most formidable weapon that we have at our disposal. It's the greatest tool in our toolbox. Before carrying out the commission, we must have a connection with the Father. And as I pray for this cause, for this movement, even today, I pray remembering where I came from. As I pray, before I pray, during my prayer, or after my prayer, I remember that this all started with Jesus sending out his apostles he is also sending out me. But before that even, I was a part of the harvest. Someone saw me as worth saving. Someone saw me as worth rescuing. They, they got on their knees and they prayed for me and for my soul. My wife, Gerald Lillard, Chuck Crow, Ralph Wallace, these are the people that were most instrumental in me becoming a Christian. People who saw me and picked me out of the crowd and said, I'm going to pray for him and I'm going to study with him in the hopes that he will respond. So we remember where we came from and we remember that we were once a part of the harvest, but now we are a laborer. You wouldn't be on your knees praying for the harvest had you not had someone on their knees praying for you. Here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe this with all my heart. I believe that we need to pray for God to throw people out of the church. I firmly believe this. Although I may be taking a little bit of license here, I think this is what Jesus is driving at. I think our earnest prayer for laborers is really a prayer to throw people out of the church. And here's why I believe this. The phrase send out in the Greek is a compound word, ekbalo. Ek meaning out and balo meaning to throw. So you have this image of throwing a ball, ekbalo. What's interesting about the word balo is not only does it mean to throw, it's where we get our English word ballistic. Ballistics, of course, is the science of projectiles and firearms. It's the explosion that occurs when the hammer of that firearm hits the bullet and projects, uh, projects it out of the gun. That's what we need to be praying for, is that God project us out of the church. That God shoot people out of the church. It's ballistic evangelism. 
That's what we need to be praying for and practicing. Lord, shoot us to Ghana. Shoot us to China. Shoot us to states that don't have a church. Shoot me across the street to talk to my neighbor. Shoot me across town so that I can be an influence. Shoot me out of the church. We pray that God light a fire inside of us that will ignite us that will ignite our hearts and will result from us being thrust out of the church and into the fields of the world. That's ballistic evangelism, and I think that's what we need to be praying for. Now, i got to tell you, I'm as guilty as anyone else when it comes to practicing the great omission. And many of us are, I know. So what little time I have left, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm as guilty as anyone. Here's what I need to hear from myself. Chris, what do you see when you see the crowds? Well, um, I see a lot of people. I see a lot of folks that, uh, that are coming our way that, that want to be a part of what we're doing here, or at least curious. I mean... You know, we're having to set out chairs. We've got two services. Yeah, but what do you really see? What do you really see when you look out at the crowd? Do you truly see people? Are you moved with compassion? Well, certainly I love people. Certainly, I care about the souls of individuals. You didn't answer my question. What do you see when you look at the crowd? Come again? When you look at the harvest, when you look at the fields, do you see people who are harassed and helpless? And what are you doing about it? I got nothing. My friends, I think that I have been so concerned sometimes about a podcast or about a television program or about, uh, you know, keeping the plates spinning when it comes to ministry that I am guilty of forgetting what it's all about. I'm afraid that I have looked at the crowd and I have tried to figure out ways to hit home runs so that we can keep them coming every week. And that's not what this is about. not what it's about. My friends, we're losing the harvest. I'm partly to blame. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spending my time and my energy spinning all these plates so that I can perform my job well enough, and I just can't do it anymore. Something has to change. First of all, I need to repent, right? I need to repent and ask God to forgive me for not always seeing the crowd. 
Understanding that preaching is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to an end. Preaching is one way in which God has ordained for me and others to get the message across and to hopefully uh, get people to understand their need for a Savior. Jesus exemplifies moving into the crowd. The Pharisees weren't going to do that. They were going to stand outside the crowd and judge everyone and determine who was fit for the kingdom and who wasn't. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to get in the middle of them. I'm going to smell like them. I'm going to do everything I can to be a part of them because they need a Savior. I need to see people the way Jesus saw them and have gut-level compassion. And secondly, I need to change my approach. I need to do as Jesus did, and I need to pray first and foremost. I need to pray for the harvest. I need to pray for the laborers. I need to pray for me to go out into the harvest and to be a laborer. I need to pray that God give me an open door, open eyes, an open heart, and an open mouth. And I need gut-level compassion because here's the deal. It doesn't matter how much knowledge I have of the Bible or how eloquent a speaker I become. Those who are harassed and helpless don't care if we use one container or multiple containers for communion. Those who are harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, don't care about my stance of a cappella singing versus instrumental music. They don't care about that. You know what they care about? Do I care? That's what they care about. Do I care about them? All this other stuff can come later. But first and foremost, they're not going to be concerned about my doctrinal stance. More than likely, they're going to be concerned about do I have a concern for them? Do I have gut level compassion? There are many people walking around in our world, in our community, asking, well, does the Oldham Lane Church of Christ care? Does that person that attends Oldham Lane, do they, do they care about me? Not that these other things aren't important, they're just not of foremost importance to someone who is a sheep without a shepherd and someone who is helpless and harassed and wandering aimlessly. Do we show gut-level compassion to them? Have you ever seen the movie Schindler's List? If you have, you know towards the end of that movie there's a, there's a climactic scene where many of the Jews that Oscar Schindler rescued are set free and he becomes a fugitive. The war is over. And he walks to his car. He's got a friend with him and others that are standing around. And he looks at his watch and he says, I could have done more. I could have sold my watch. That would have freed some more. He looks at his car. He says, I, I could have sold my car. I could, have, I could have saved more. Could he have? Maybe. I mean, there are far more people who died in the Holocaust than that were saved by Oscar Schindler. But his attitude should be our attitude. I can do more. I can always do more. Because there's always more to do, right? The mission never ends. There is a harvest out there. And, and, the, and the harassed and helpless are plentiful. Unfortunately, laborers, not always. We've got to understand that there is a time to gather and a time to scatter. And so we come together and we leave as a movement to hopefully take this city by storm. 
to reach those who are harassed and helpless and let them know that there is a rescuer. I'm going to ask Eddie, one of our shepherds, to come up and lead us in a prayer because if this is going to work, if it's going to be successful, that's where it starts, right? Eddie, if you don't mind. Help us to see the truth that is in your word and that so many times, Father, we take the comfortable route, but help us to look around us each and every day and to see those who are in need of the hope that's found through your son. Father, we ask that we might look for opportunity that presents it self to us continually to reach out and to show others that we care about them and that we are concerned about them and father that might open doors for us to then approach them about their belief in you and father give us the courage as we live our lives each day that we might always have before us the importance of the gospel, what it meant to us, and what it means or can mean to others in the world if we would stand up and share that truth with them. But Father, it all begins by having compassion, by showing concern, by being involved, by doing something and not just sitting. Father, just give us the courage and the strength that we need to follow after you and to seek and save the lost. Father, we ask this through your Son and our Savior. Amen. Thank you. If you're here this morning and you fit the description of a sheep without a shepherd or harassed and helpless, we care about you. We love you and we want what's best for you. And what's best for you is to let us pray with you, study the Bible with you, talk about the next steps in faith. If you are a child of God and maybe you feel like you've strayed off the path, like a sheep that's wandering and you need the prayers of this church family, then we want to help you there as well. I love all of you. More importantly, God loves you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?